Today's episode is based on the accounts written in The Washing Away of Wrongs, Forensic Medicine in 13th Century China, translated by Brian E. McKnight. I've always enjoyed a good detective book. You know, like the Agatha Christie's and the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's. There's something about the genius of their protagonists, Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot, that makes them so entertaining, much more so than modern CSI work. That's not to disparage investigators today, but there's something about the matching of wits and those early 20th century fiction novels that drives closer to what we might claim to be, quote, good detective work, compared to, well, modern forensics. It's almost like modern forensic science can feel like cheating. Do you ever get that feeling? I feel like there's almost something unfair about the fact that a criminal can pull off everything seemingly without a hitch, and yet a single hair is found at a crime scene And that's all it takes, one DNA test and match. The odds are stacked against the criminal higher than they've ever been in history, which, let me be clear, I'm very much glad that they are. Really, I suppose, I miss some of the theatrical in those early Pulp Fiction books. That blend of forensics, logic, wit, that comes together in a way that tickles the part of my brain that wants to not only see the criminals have their comeuppance, but see it in a way where they are outsmarted by the investigators themselves. But what if we could blend the two together, this cold-blooded logic and wit, and some modern forensics? What would that look like? Well, it turns out, we already know. Because that was the basis for the very first forensic science book ever written. A sort of forensics for dummies. And what might surprise you is how robust its contents were and how it was written almost a thousand years ago. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. village in China, a body of a villager is found on the road. The body has ten wounds inflicted by a blade, and all of his belongings are present. The investigators originally are perplexed, because while it has the makings of a trailside robbery, there is no evidence of him ever having been robbed, and he seemingly has no enemies. The head investigator questions the victim's wife, who states that one man came to her husband about borrowing money, which her husband set a time limit upon which the loan must be repaid. The investigator set out figuring out the blade that was used. He inflicted multiple wounds with different instruments on animal carcasses until he finds one that fits the original body's wounds, a sickle. He requests all the sickles in the village to be brought to him. Anyone who tried to hide one would be tried as a murderer. 
when all the sickles are brought to him on the hot summer day, none of them show any marks or traces of being used as a murder weapon. Strangely, however, horseflies set upon one particular sickle no different than the rest. When the investigator asks, whose is this? The man who asked to borrow money from the victim stepped up. The investigator accused him of murder, but when the man refused to confess, the investigator pointed out the flies. They were attracted to the invisible remains of blood that had not come out after washing the weapon. The flies could still smell and possibly even taste the blood still on the sickle. At this, the murderer confessed. Now this sounds like a wild story straight out of Sherlock Holmes, but it's not. In fact, it's a true event from the Song Dynasty in the 13th century. So often people are surprised to find out that forensic science is not a modern invention. Certainly it's most recent inception has been the Industrial Revolution with the invention of ballistics, toxicology, etc., but it has existed for much longer than that. Part of the reason behind this is that popular culture views medieval history as the Dark Ages, you know, backwards and ignorant of modern science, but really, forensics has been around for thousands of years, and nowhere was it greater than in ancient China. In fact, it's the Chinese who create the very first book on forensic science. It's titled, The Washing Away of Wrongs. And it's a how-to book for examining unusual deaths. And the story of the sickle and the horseflies is just one of the many, many examples in the book of how Chinese officials caught criminals using its teachings. You're probably wondering, why China? Why not Europe or the Middle East? Well, as one Portuguese trader of the time said, quote, The Chinese magistrates will go to any length to avoid condemning a person to death. End quote. The reason why this is, is cultural. The Chinese focused on the investigation process much more than the punishment itself. And their investigations ran opposite of what we would consider most European investigations of the time. Normally, European investigations were mostly testimonial in nature. There's very little forensic evidence that was applied. Another thing is that the supernatural and natural were intertwined in European investigations. In other words, the Europeans would oftentimes ascribe the divine to something that might have a natural cause. But the Chinese were much more down to earth. The divine would not always out. Trusting in the divine as a mediator of justice was something that was considered fickle. Rather, it was the job of the state to find criminals, not God. Crime was similar in nature to European society, especially violent crime. Fights, robberies, highwaymen, these were all common instances where crime would turn violent and someone ended up dead. The criminals were known... And justice could be meted out quickly, but sometimes someone turned up dead and the cause was unknown. Was it natural, an accident, or something sinister? During the 12th century, only a small group of civil servants were assigned to investigate the deaths of these unknown causes. The Song Dynasty of China 
covered an area around the size of Western Europe, and it had over 100 million inhabitants. There's only 15,000 officials that governed this vast empire, and they had many bureaucratic tasks, taxes, legal disputes, mail service, maintenance. Only a small portion of their time could be devoted to investigating crime. As such, most of their investigations involved crimes against the state, or violent crimes, organized crime, crimes involving government officials, highway robbery, arson, murder. These were the interests of the civil servants, certainly not the small stuff. Now, most of this was handled on the local level, where about 4,000 officials were set up on a hierarchy to help break up all these tasks. Even so, you might have two or three civil servants to cover all of these tasks for up to 75,000 people. Imagine, like, your local administration having maybe, like, five people to perform all the tasks, whether it's road maintenance, the legal disputes, being a cop, all of that would be under these one, two, or three people. Now, one of these servants always included a sheriff, thankfully, but the problem there was that the sheriff was always restricted to the home city unless official business called them elsewhere. So you can imagine trying to cover 75,000 people in like a rural prefecture, that would have been a nightmare already, let alone to only be able to survey your jurisdiction when somebody called you about business. As such, the civil servants had very little understanding of the day-to-day -day aspects of the area they served, but they did have one thing that they brought to the table, and that was knowledge. Civil servants were highly educated, and like jack-of-all-trades, really. They didn't know a lot of practical knowledge, but they knew a little bit of everything, so math, science, rhetoric, poetry, and as such, in order to learn more about a particular trade or skill, the civil servants wrote books about their area of expertise to be shared amongst their peers. So normally this would be like local histories, census records, and sometimes technical training manuals. And that's what the washing away of wrongs was. A forensics for dummies. Sometimes the washing away of wrongs is translated as the washing of unjust imputations. There's a lot of different names for it. It was written around 1247 by Sung Tzu, not to be confused with Sun Tzu, the guy who wrote The Art of War. Sung Tzu wrote the book specifically for civil servants in the event of an investigation into an unknown death. It wasn't the first work written about forensic investigations in China. In fact, there was some written as early as 225 BC. But unlike other works, it was written as a comprehensive examination of the art of figuring out how someone died. You see, in the event of an unusual death, government officials had to submit an inquest, which triggered an investigation into the cause of the death. And this was no simple inquiry. It required an examination of the crime scene and an autopsy, questioning of involved parties, and writing a report that would be used in the event of a trial. Sometimes, a re-inquest would be used to cross-examine the evidence available from the first inquest. In other words, these are not open and shut cases. It has all the trappings of a modern homicide investigation. But, 
there are some serious problems for investigators that could lead to drastic consequences if they screwed up. First, you have to remember, this process could only start once a civil servant was informed of an unusual death, and that could take days, even weeks, because they couldn't leave their prefectures. The first witness was typically the one required to inform the civil servants, and that could require a trek to the city where the servants were, then the subsequent trek back to the crime scene to start the whole process. Just like think in modern times about how it would be if we were required to wait 48 hours before the very first investigation of the crime scene. It's the opposite. You've probably heard the term that in 48 hours, most of the evidence is gone. But that's what these civil servants had to deal with. Also, kind of disgustingly, many such investigations never even made it past the initial stage because by the time they got there, the bodies would be deteriorated too much and you couldn't figure out a time or manner of death. Second, the officials hated investigations. It's a dirty business, and it's often unfruitful, and these guys are bookworms. And the worst part is, if they mess up anywhere in the process, even a tiny bit, they're subjected to harsh punishment. For example, one official accidentally listed the wounds on a body as from a knife, yet it turned out that they were from a whip. The civil servant was sentenced for three years in prison, and later that was changed to 100 strikes from a heavy rod, basically like a walking stick, across the back. So were all of his attendants who had helped him. If that seems a little excessive, 100 blows is a common punishment for screw-ups in an investigation. You could get blows for failing to forward a completed inquest on the same day it was finished. So when I say screwing up a little problem, I mean it could be a very little problem. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, these civil servants are very busy. Maybe they would just turn away certain clients to perform all their other duties. You're wrong. To deny an inquest would also mete out 100 blows from a heavy rod, so pick your poison. Third, it was also not uncommon in ancient China for those who died of natural causes or suicide to make the events look like murder in order to frame somebody else. Think of it like a vengeance from the grave against those that had wronged them. But of course, that's kind of a problem, because if it comes to light later on that a civil servant was tricked into writing the wrong report, then they get those harsh punishments brought upon them. Here comes a hundred heavy blows. And fourth, re-inquests were common for unusual deaths, and if the original inquest and re-inquest did not come to the exact same conclusion then someone would be punished. And again, think, if the body has deteriorated in between the original inquest and the re-inquest, if those two come into different conclusions, which they probably will, then again, here come some rod strikes. Imagine that immense pressure on these civil servants to weave through all of these complications without screwing up. It's like this complex game of like, I don't know, the board game operation is kind of what I'm thinking of, except instead of a buzzer, you get beat. And even worse, these are bureaucrats. They're not detectives. They're the equivalent of pencil pushers being thrown into a field very few of them were familiar with. You'd basically have to be a forensic expert to escape this whole process unscathed. And that was the goal of the washing away of wrongs, to make you a forensic expert. Sung Tzu's book 
remained the pinnacle of forensic information for over seven centuries. It was said that it was the book that was always carried to the scene of an inquest by a civil servant. Its purpose was to inform these greenhorns how to conduct a full forensic investigation. As such, about half the book is simply on the intricacies of the law, on how to set up an inquest, what inquests are unnecessary, and etc. But what makes it fascinating for modern readers is not its bureaucratic half, but the other half, the one that's actually dealing with the forensics and investigations, because they sound like something out of a Sherlock Holmes book. That is in part because Sung Zhu is, in many respects, strikingly similar to that fictional character. His understanding of forensic science is mind-bogglingly extensive, and he employs his understanding of it with unorthodox methods that bring consistent results. He's kind of an interesting character, as it is. He was part of the civil service for almost 40 years, and he began as a sheriff in the Qiqiang province, and was rising in rank to the judicial intendant. Unlike many of these other civil servants, he took his inquests seriously. In fact, the very introduction of the book starts, quote, Among criminal matters, none is more serious than capital cases. In capital cases, nothing is given more weight than the initially collected facts. As to these initially collected facts, nothing is more crucial than the holding of inquests. End quote. Now, the book itself is an amalgamation of all these different scholarly resources and officials on forensics, as well as his own experience, and to him it all starts at the scene of the crime. Sung Zhu always began his investigation at the crime scene by bringing the accused, the accusers, and witnesses all together, and would force them to stay at the crime scene while the body was opened and examined, and the crime scene was investigated, and then, at the very end, they would interrogate them. The purpose of bringing all these people together at the crime scene is a sort of psychological torture to try and break down and out the perpetrator, which, when you think about it, is ingenious. He would always conduct the examination of the corpse himself, as well as the interrogation process, and he would call out details to any of his assistants to be written down on record. One of the biggest difficulties he immediately comes across is ascertaining injuries that may be hidden or invisible on their first examination, and this is where the sort of interesting forensic science part comes in. Now before I begin, I should make clear that not all of his ideas on forensic science are correct. Sometimes they're obviously simply coincidental, sometimes they apply to most cases but not all cases but I think it's important historically to understand that this is really the first time this is ever being done. And the fact that it actually has an air of accuracy to it is amazing. So the first thing he does with every corpse is he devises a solution to bring injuries to the surface. He says, quote, The corpse should be washed with warm water. Begin by having sheets of paper soaked in wine and vinegar placed over the face, chest, and ribs, breasts, abdomen, and the two sides. Again, use clothing and bedding, arrange it like a compress over the corpse. Sprinkle wine and vinegar on top of this. Place mats over this, and leave them there for a while, and then the examination may proceed. End quote. 
his idea was that the wine and the vinegar would outline the injuries, which they most of the time did. Now, if they didn't, onions, white plums, and pottery powder could all bring these injuries to the surface. He even suggests at one point to heat up the body so that the original color comes back in and rids the corpse of its tallowy condition, which apparently can be done by placing the body over hot coals in a pit until its body temperature. He also devotes most of the book to determining manner of death, and some of these are obvious. So like, for example, ashes in the mouth mean that the victim died in a fire. Water in the belly means the victim drowned. Suffocation will result in a swollen but dry belly. In a murder by strangulation, the rope marks will crisscross the neck rather than be even. Apparently, a suicide by hanging would instead leave two strokes like the Chinese character ate at the back of the neck. Large cuts are slicing blades, while small wounds are puncture wounds. Now, some of this might seem kind of obvious to us today, but remember that these are people who have never dealt with forensic science before. They don't exactly have the same amount of education and knowledge that we might be able to get through, like, podcasts here or a cold case there. Another thing he would do is he'd examine underneath the fingernails to determine manner of death, if there's sand or mud blood. If people died from like high places, he would go and suggest to take a look around the area and, and look for footprints to see if somebody had pushed them or how they were thrown off. One thing during an investigation that sometimes would occur is that originally people would find a body and think it dead, but then it turns out that the victim was alive. And if Sung Zhu got there in time, then what they would do is they would assign what's called a death limit. It's this idea of a unit of time, 10 days, 2 weeks, a month, and it's basically a ticking time bomb for the accused. Because if the victim dies before the time is up, then the death is ruled a homicide. So like for example, if you're in a bar fight where one side is like beaten into a coma but they're still alive, then the death limit would start. And if they died maybe like 2 weeks in and the death limit was a month, then whoever beat him into a coma is a homicidal murderer. But if the person died after a month, then that person might only get, like, battery. Sung Zhu published diagrams on the human body in the book to help detail all the areas where injuries would be mortal and labeled all the bones of the body for examination, and they're still in the published book today and is extremely detailed. Together, all of this would be used in conjunction with procedures laid out in the book to fully document an examination of a corpse and crime scene. Dozens of spots would be required to be examined, as well as the expression on the corpse itself. Several procedures also covered women, children, even fetuses. In these chapters, the book strays into like straight-up medical textbook territory. And again, if you were a civil servant, you would have no anatomical experience, so these diagrams and procedures were the equivalent of a crash course in anatomy. But the key difference between like a coroner and an investigator is that an investigator is trying to find a criminal using not just forensic science, but a little bit of logic, that sort of Sherlock Holmes part, the one where you can always see it coming, but you didn't see it coming until Sherlock Holmes let you know. And Sung Tzu always uses logic to ascertain the pattern of events that played out for victims. For example, he tells a story of one investigation 
where two dead men are found in a hut, one outside and one inside. The first one had died from a blow to the skull and knife wounds to the face. The second one had died from knife wounds to the right side of his face. Originally, those involved believed it to be a murder-suicide, where the first person on the outside was murdered and the second guy stabbed himself in the face. But one official pointed out that the knife wounds to the second man were at an angle that would be almost impossible to inflict upon oneself, at which point they changed the investigation to a homicide, and a couple days later, a man was arrested for the murder of the two. Another example is a case in which a body was found in a pool so deteriorated it would be impossible to ascertain the injuries sustained. So, the official removed the skull and poured hot water through the fontanelle so that it flowed out through the nasal cavity looking for dirt or sand. Such dirt or sand would suggest death by drowning, as the water would have been muddied in his flailings. No dirt or sand would suggest the body had been deposited after death to look like a drowning. As you can imagine, Sung Tzu never trusted the semblance of events at face value. For example, when discussing the examination of a body that had been hung as if it was a suicide, Sung Tzu immediately suspects the opposite. He writes, quote, In the case of hanging, it is imperative that the place where the hanging occurred and the marks on the neck be examined. Had the corpse already been moved or not? As to the height of the place where the corpse was suspended, where did the victim originally place his feet? What was used to climb up to the place of hanging? Again, the length of the cord below the place of suspension should be examined, as should its size, which must be compared to the size of the marks on the neck to see if they correspond. Farther along, he writes, quote, If it is a case of someone being killed by falling from a high space, the place where he lost his footing must be looked at to see if the ground has been disturbed and to note the depth of the footprints. End quote. Sometimes, Sung Tzu strays into darker territories that mimic some of the most brutal modern cases in America, and they are disturbing. For example, he writes, quote, In holding an inquest on a woman who has no apparent injuries, the vagina must be examined lest the knife has been inserted there to penetrate the vitals inside of the stomach. If it penetrated not far beneath the skin, then above and below the navel there will be small bloody soakings. If it passed deep within the vitals, these will not appear. Frequently, these kinds of deaths are cases of solitary men wanting to feed on women. End quote. Also describing the various methods of determining suicide by hanging versus a murder, he writes, quote, Where the victim has really killed himself by hanging, tying up a rope or such thing and hanging himself, the flesh where the rope crosses over behind the ears will be deep purple in color, the eyes will be closed, the lips open the hands clenched, and the teeth exposed. If the rope passes high on the throat, then the tongue will be pressed against the teeth. If low on the throat, the tongue will often protrude a long way, and there will be spittle on the chest. Behind the buttocks, feces will have been excreted. If another man strangled the victim and tried to pass it off as suicide, the mouth and eyes will be open, the hands apart, and the hair in disorder. End quote. That might seem a little gruesome, but when you are a civil servant, and you've never dealt with a dead body before, you can imagine that you need all the help you can get to avoid those lashings that will come up if you get even one tiny detail wrong. 
Another disturbing but fascinating fact is how to tell injuries sustained in hot months. He writes, quote, During the hot months, if maggots have not yet appeared at the nine orifices, but have appeared at the temple, hairline, ribcage, or belly, then these parts have been injured. End quote. In fact, Sung Tzu devotes a whole chapter to the decay of corpses depending on the seasons. His golden rule for corpses is each hot day is equivalent to five cold days, so civil servants need to plan accordingly. And by utilizing the temperature and the insects and maggots that might feast on the corpse, one could ascertain the time of death down to at least a day, if not a period of hours. And again, we should make clear, not all of Sung Tzu's forensics are completely accurate. Some of them are simply false. For example, he lists that corpses float prone if they're male, but supine if female, which we know is completely incorrect. So don't expect to go Encyclopedia Brown any cold cases using his book. However, it holds a lot of information beyond the times it was written in, and for that alone, it deserves merit. Elsewhere in the book, he describes in detail the various ways to determine manner of death, and the list is so extensive it begins to sound like a laundry list of the various ways a person can die. It makes me think of that moment in Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, where he lists off all the different ways he's tried to kill himself, and it sounds just as crazy. Here are some of the subchapters. There's ones to drowning, hanging, beating, beheading, burning, bludgeoning, slicing, stabbing, scalding, suffocation, poisoning, falling, freezing, choking, crushing, prodding, trampling, illness, carts, tigers, snakes, insects, reptiles, rats, dogs, acupuncture, eating, drinking, dismemberment, sex, lightning. I mean, it's an absurd amount, right? And yet each one has a paragraph devoted to it, at the very least, some of them pages, and they're fascinatingly on point. Here's just a few of examples from some of like the surprising ones. I've never been a person who thought that toxicology was very well known until more like early modern world. But Sung Tzu lists multiple poisons and their effects on the human body, including arsenic, goldworm, rat grass, gelsimium. In order to ascertain the effects on the body for poisons taken over a long period of time, he suggests a gluttonous rice test. Basically what that would be is they'd take a hot rice ball and insert it into the mouth of the victim, which would then soak up any poison taken orally. If it's clean, the victim was not poisoned. Some of the other ones, I once I read the subchapter titles, I immediately had to figure out what is that. Like, for example, what does death by tiger bite look like? And apparently, they bite the same way a cat bites a rat, by the head and the neck, with puncture wounds over the chest and the heart. Another one that was interesting was the one where you die by lightning, in which case the injury will have occurred at the top and the back of the head, and the hair will be singed, and many curved lines will be marked onto the chest, the neck, back, and upper arms. And of course, death by sexual excess, apparently enough of a problem to elicit a short paragraph, wherein Sung Tzu describes how a man who died because of a heart attack during sex will have rigor mortis set into his erection. I'll be honest, I'm not going to Google whether that theory is actually true. But again, take everything that he writes with a grain of salt. 
but I think it's unfair at times, because with the advances of science, we can look back as observers and say, well, some of those facts simply aren't true in all cases. But the scientific rigor that Sung Tzu is employing is the very first major standard of forensic science ever attributed in history. You can't really fault when one is making the very first forensic science book ever created that some of the facts might not be what we know today as robustly. And more importantly, I feel that a lot of these facts are, in a way, more primitive. They might not be as fleshed out or accurate, but they're there. Apparently, it was accurate enough for China because the washing away of wrongs is used for centuries afterwards by civil servants through the Song Dynasty and into the rest. It's a testament to the ingeniousness of mankind in catching criminals and bringing order to society. Sometimes I think that we modern persons are skeptical of our own intelligence as a race. Like those people a thousand years ago are like prototypes of the real human being. We often forget that in a thousand years, humans will probably be saying something similar of us. Those proto-humans with their DNA testing and laboratory science. Fools they were to not realize they were only images. I think we often forget in our hubris that human intelligence is the driver of knowledge, not the other way around. Hercule Poirot and Sherlock Holmes utilize what was known to figure out the unknown. They aren't myths, because that's exactly what Sung Tzu was doing a thousand years ago. And because of him, we're catching modern criminals today. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com. 